When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Of the slaves who compose so large a portion of our population, I entertain much stronger apprehensions. Scarcely a day passes without some information relative to the designs of those people to insurrect. It is true that no clear or positive evidence of their intentions has been communicated. But certain facts and expressions of their views have justly excited considerable alarm amongst the citizens. For my own part, I'm impressed with the belief that real danger exists, and it is my duty to lose no time in procuring arms for the defense of the country. Mississippi Territorial Governor David Holmes to General James Wilkinson, July 22, 1812. Citizens, your government has at last yielded to the impulse of the nation. Your impatience is no longer restrained. The hour of national vengeance is now at hand. The eternal enemies of American prosperity are again to be taught to respect your rights after having been compelled to feel once more the power of your arms. We are going to fight for the reestablishment of our national character, misunderstood and vilified at home and abroad. For the protection of our maritime citizens, impressed on board British ships of war and compelled to fight the battles of our enemies against ourselves. To vindicate our right to a free trade and open a market for the productions of our soil. In fine, to seek some indemnity for past injuries, some security against future aggressions, by the conquest of all British dominions upon the continent of North America. Andrew Jackson, 7th of March, 1812. Even before the surrender of Fort Detroit to the British, which was covered at the conclusion of the last episode, Democratic-Republican leaders across the nation began to see threats everywhere. Tecumseh's Confederacy to the West, Canada to the North, the Spanish to the South, the Federalist and insurrection-minded enslaved individuals from within, and the British and the French abroad. These leaders saw as the answer to these threats as the quotes attest, to arm up the nation's forces to confront them. As the old saying goes, though, the devil's in the details. Before I get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Tanner from the Beyond the Breakers podcast, as well as my husband Alex, for providing the opening quotes for this episode. Given that the Jackson quote mentioned our maritime citizens, I couldn't resist inviting Tanner to read that quote. Shipwrecks have fascinated folks for generations, and on Beyond the Breakers, Tanner and his co-host Taylor take the audience through not just the details of a shipwreck, but also explore the individuals and circumstances involved, as well as the impact of the event. 
The history comes alive on their podcast, even for folks like myself who have limited maritime experience, so I cannot recommend it enough. I'll have links to Beyond the Breakers on my social media around the time of this episode's release, or you can find a link on the sources section for this episode on the website, presidenciespodcast.com. You can also search for Beyond the Breakers wherever fine podcasts can be found. As a Mississippi native, I asked Alex to give life to the words of David Holmes. Alex has been a supporter of this podcast from the very beginning, and indeed was the one who brought up the idea of me doing a podcast in the first place all those years ago. Since then, he's been involved as a sounding board, a proofreader, and an occasional opening quote reader. Now, as you heard in the latest Seat at the Table episode, I've gotten him involved on a whole new level as a guest. He's always a good sport and has been a champion of my work and of me. And there are not enough words to express my gratitude and thankfulness for having him in my life. Je t'aime avec tout mon cœur, mon mari. Before we proceed, I'd also like to take a moment to thank our patrons whose financial support helps to fund the equipment, fees, and research materials that are integral to bringing presidencies to all of you. Thanks so much to Matthew, Ike, Jeremy, Michelle, Joshua, Matthew, Terrell, Eric, Howard, Michael, Michelle, and Scott for their continued support. If you would like to support presidencies as a patron, just go to patreon.com presidencies to sign up. Thanks so much also to Abby, Josh, and Terrell for the books that they sent for my research list as sources that I'd like to incorporate in future episodes. The story of the Presidency's podcast, much like the story of the American presidency itself, is not one of just one person, but of the efforts of many coming together. And I thank all of those who have helped in forging this path and who continue to keep presidencies moving forward. With that said, let's proceed on with our narrative of the Madison presidency. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. I'd like to pick back up that thread that we finished the last episode off with, the surrender of Detroit. While I don't intend to go into that level of detail about every military action in the War of 1812, I thought that was important to examine as it highlights some of the key issues that would permeate through the American war effort in the War of 1812. Disorganized military command, the struggle to keep troops in the field supplied, 
and a lack of coordinated effort. To be fair to General William Hull, he had warned his superiors in Washington of the difficulties of launching an invasion of Canada and the importance of naval support on the Great Lakes to augment military efforts on the Northwestern Front. Instead, he was ordered into action against his objections, but with the understanding that it would be as part of a coordinated three-pronged attack on Canada, which should enhance his chances. The problem, as we shall see, is that it wasn't made clear to the other two prongs that Hull and his force were depending on them. Moreover, the British had the upper hand on intelligence to the point that British Major General Isaac Brock knew more about American troop movements than General Hull and coordinated his forces accordingly to take down Hull before moving to another theater of the war. Before we proceed to examine what was happening on other fronts, let's bring a close to General Hull's tale. He was ultimately released by the British and, upon his return to the U.S., brought before a court-martial in 1814 to answer for his actions at Detroit. Considering that the court was composed of his political enemies, it was never going to go well for Hull. He was brought up on various charges, the most serious of which was treason, but was only convicted on counts of cowardice and neglect of duty. Even only being found guilty on the lesser charges, the court recommended that Hull get the death sentence. On April 24, 1814, Madison accepted the court's findings, but commuted the sentence of death, and Hull was dishonorably discharged from the army and released. William Hull was ridiculed and reviled, both in his time and by later historians. But I would argue that, though missteps were certainly made, he was ultimately dealt a rod in hand to begin with in a command that he didn't really want in the first place. It takes two to tango, but Hull did not have a reliable dance partner and was ultimately made into the scapegoat by the pro-war faction for this early disastrous misstep. It wasn't the strategy or the administrative apparatus that was the problem, just this one flawed commander. The more time went on, though, the falser this conclusion seemed. The architect of the Madison administration's initial war strategy, General Henry Dearborn, rather than remaining in Washington to oversee its successful implementation, instead shifted to a field command to take charge of the Northeastern Army, the easternmost of the three prongs to attack Canada. However, his efforts to recruit his force in New England proved ineffective as there was a strong opposition to the war in that region. Dearborn remained in Boston until late July before proceeding to Albany. When he finally did start taking an active role in his command, one of his first actions in August was to agree to a truce proposed by British Governor of the Canadas, Sir George Prevost. This wouldn't have been so bad except for two issues. First, the truce did not include the Detroit area, so British forces there, as we've seen, were free to proceed with taking that strategic point. Second, he didn't consult with the administration in Washington prior to agreeing to the truce. Now, while this truce could help give Dearborn and the commander of the Niagara Front time to pull together a sufficient force to launch their invasions, the lack of coordination with Hull undercut the larger strategy as it left Hull out to dry. Madison wrote to Dearborn on August 9th that, quote, It was much to have been desired that simultaneous invasions of Canada at several points 
particularly in relation to Malden and Montreal, might have secured the great object of bringing all Upper Canada and the channels communicating with the Indians under our command, with ulterior prospects towards Quebec flattering to our arms. The systematic operation having been frustrated, it only remains to pursue the course that will diminish the disappointment as much as possible. General Hull, as you will have learned, is preparing a force for the attack of Malden. It appears that General Hull was making an effort to overpower the British force in Lake Erie, his success in which will be critically useful in several respects. Had Hull been successful, it certainly would have been. But, well. As further evidence of the confusion in the strategy at this point, General Dearborn replied back to Madison on the 15th that, quote, Unfortunately, no explicit orders have been received by me in relation to Upper Canada until it was too late even to make an effectual diversion in favor of General Hull. All that I could do was done without any delay. So, Hall was given orders to proceed quickly to take Fort Malden in the West, while no quote-unquote explicit orders were issued in the East for a simultaneous attack to draw off some of the defensive forces in Canada, though that was at the heart of the strategy. In case you didn't think the American war effort could get any worse, let's talk about our old friend, General James Wilkinson. When last we left Wilkinson in episode 4.17, he had been cleared of the charges in his court-martial and restored to his military commission in February 1812. On April 10th, orders were sent to Wilkinson, quote, to take command of the defenses of New Orleans. In a rather uncharacteristic move, when he received these orders, as described by his biographer Andrew Linkletter, Wilkinson, quote, meekly asked Secretary of War William Eustace to specify exactly the powers he could exercise and the precise goals the executive wished him to achieve. Maybe the fact that he had been so close to complete disaster had caused a change of heart in Wilkinson. Or maybe he just thought it was best to tread lightly for a bit. Whatever the case, Wilkinson arrived in New Orleans in July to take command of the situation. Again from Linkletter, quote, he found the three regiments of infantry under his command woefully unprepared for hostilities. Wilkinson's modus operandi to that point had been, when he was put into a bad situation, to find someone to blame, and that person was often the person who had been in the position prior to him. In this case, it was General Wade Hampton, who it does seem was deserving of some share of criticism for the state of the troops in New Orleans. However, as Linkletter notes, quote, Hampton was Eustace's man. Thus, Wilkinson again did something uncharacteristic. He just focused on, quote, his efforts to restore order. Has this leopard that we've gotten to know so well over time actually changed his spots? Don't worry, we'll return to Wilkinson again before long, but let's check in on what's happening to the East, as developments in the East Florida situation were part of the reason that there was a sense of urgency in shoring up the defense of New Orleans. When we left the Patriot War last time, The siege of St. Augustine had just begun. Aside from small moves here and there, the first few days were rather uneventful. The arrival of American ships in the inlet leading to St. Augustine and the sight of the American flag flying above a Spanish fortification north of the colonial capital were disheartening to Spanish governor of East Florida, Juan José de Estrada, 
as the aid and additional support that he had requested from Spanish authorities in Cuba had yet to arrive. As day after day wore on, Estrada had to evaluate and reevaluate whether he should try to launch a counterassault and force his way through the Patriot Army. On April 15th, the first sign of hope appeared on the horizon. The HMS Calibri, a British ship commanded by Captain Thomas Thompson, an acquaintance of Estrada's, appeared at the mouth of the harbor. Thompson and his crew had been in the Bahamas when word had arrived of the capture of Fernandina, East Florida's second most populous settlement, and he immediately made preparations to set sail to offer Estrada and Spanish East Florida support. Now, we should note here that the declaration of war for the War of 1812 was still a couple of months away, so rather than fight it out, the American vessels set sail to return to U.S. waters. Things only went from bad to worse for the Patriot forces from there. While the ranks of the Patriot Army had swollen to 400 individuals in March, thanks to the carrot and stick proclamations issued offering land to those who supported their cause and to take the land of those who remained loyal to Spain, those numbers started melting away as the siege wore on. As is common in the history of warfare, an immobile military force is a disengaged military force. So folks from East Florida who had joined the cause drifted off, quote, to check on their families and plantations, while others, quote, took to looting deserted homesteads. In the latter part of April, a letter was sent to Governor Estrada offering him $5,000, quote, for speedily inducing a union of St. Augustine in this noble and glorious cause, i.e. the Patriot cause. Estrada was not one to be bought off, however. A major blow came to the Patriot cause when word arrived that General George Matthews, a key driving force of this entire operation, had been dismissed as an agent of the U.S. federal government. Matthews was absent from the main part of the force at the time as he had traveled to confer with Seminole chiefs in the area to ensure that they did not enter the conflict on the side of the Spanish. But the other key Patriot leaders had to consider what his dismissal meant for their prospects as they had all been recruited by Matthews. Rather than giving up, they doubled down. The intended public leader of the Patriot cause, John Houston McIntosh, called an emergency meeting, which resulted in a call being issued, quote, for 500 new recruits to a volunteer militia called the 2nd East Florida Infantry Regiment. Generous offers for land were put forward to recruits who would remain in service until St. Augustine fell. McIntosh also sent an appeal to be printed in U.S. newspapers in the South, asking for their support of the Patriot cause. The situation, however, was descending into chaos. Georgia Governor David Bridie Mitchell had been appointed as Matthews' replacement as an agent of the federal government and charged with assessing the situation in East Florida and opening a dialogue with Spanish authorities there. What he found when he arrived on the scene was disorder. As described by historian James Cusick, quote, Local jurisdiction in East Florida was all but collapsing under the competing sovereignties of the Spaniards, the Patriots, and the U.S. Army. Fernandina, though officially taken by the Patriots and ceded to the U.S., was the scene of insurrection. And indeed, Spanish forces in St. Augustine had been able to get weapons out and up the coast to loyalists in Fernandina to use against the occupiers. As the governor of the state to the north, Mitchell's primary concern was what it would mean for his citizens, 
and his already existing concerns had only worsened the further south he went towards the border with East Florida. As May went on, challenges to Patriot authority in Fernandina increased. Meanwhile, Mitchell's first overture to Governor Estrada in early May was rebuffed. Estrada refused to talk peace, quote, until American troops left Spanish soil. On May 16th, a, quote, schooner flying a British flag and armed with two 24-pound cannons and some smaller caliber guns began firing on Patriot forces gathered north of St. Augustine in an attempted counterattack. Though unsuccessful, it sent a strong message. Governor Mitchell, though still charged with engaging diplomatically with Spanish officials in East Florida, used his authority to reinforce U.S. military regulars in the region as he asserted that, quote, I will not suffer any sacrifice of that detachment, either as to health or the enemy. By June 11th, however, it seemed ever more apparent that the Patriot cause was becoming a lost cause. On that day, a squadron of ships was spotted headed into the harbor. This ship carried 270 reinforcements, supplies, 5,000 pesos, and the new governor of East Florida, Sebastian Kindelan y Oregon. Kindelan was not new to East Florida. He had been there before to quell a revolt in 1794. As noted by Cusick, quote, his extensive military experience and his previous role as head of an expedition to Florida had convinced his superiors he was the natural choice for the job. Kindelan immediately took charge and sent word to Governor Mitchell, quote, demanding to know why American troops were still on Spanish soil. When American military officers were sent to meet with Kindelan, the new Spanish governor demanded that they, quote, withdraw their troops at once beyond the St. John's River and cease their support of a banditti of rebels. The negotiations went back and forth for weeks with little progress. Mitchell dug in his heels and, in addition to demanding, quote, amnesty for the Patriots, also asked for an apology for Estrada's counterattack on May 16th. Mitchell also objected to Kinderland's bringing a force of several hundred black soldiers with him to reinforce the Spanish position in Florida. Quote, the United States, said Mitchell, would never tolerate an army of black troops on its southern border. Kindelan did not take kindly to Mitchell's demands and admonitions and cut off communications. Kindelan would force the Americans out, though he had to be careful in his approach as he could not rely on any more reinforcements to come from Cuba while the American forces, though weaker than the Spanish troops currently available in Florida, could draw on reinforcements much more easily. Beginning on June 20th, a force departed from St. Augustine at night and, as ordered by Kindelan, began, quote, to reconnoiter the area around Fort Picolata and then raid up and down the St. John's River, causing as much havoc as they could and securing more food for the town. The Americans and Patriots soon learned of this force. In the next few days, they, quote, played a game of duck and run against each other without coming to blows. The arrival of fresh American troops at the fort caused the Spanish troops to retreat, and by July 2nd, most of them were back at St. Augustine. By this time, though, the damage had been done. The American forces were scattered across the countryside, and the Spanish troops had managed to, quote, bring back 95 heads of cattle to add to the available food supplies in the besieged colonial capital. 
We'll leave East Florida here, as the declaration of war with Britain would change the landscape of the Patriot War. The first impact would be in the same legislative halls that the war declaration originated from. On June 19th, the day after war against Britain was declared, Representative George Troop, Democratic-Republican from Georgia, put forward a resolution, quote, affirming American rights to East and West Florida and authorizing a military occupation of both provinces. With some modifications, a bill to this effect passed the House by a vote of 70 to 48. In the Senate, however, the Federalists found common cause with anti-administration Democratic-Republicans in opposing the bill. War with Britain was bad enough, but Federalists were opposed to also engaging in war with Spain at the same time. For opposition, Democratic-Republicans dubbed the Invisibles, opposing the Madison administration's aim to acquire all the Floridas, offered a chance for revenge for perceived slights. It was known that the vote would be close, but the administration and its congressional allies were shocked to find the resolution defeated by a vote of 14 for to 16 against. As Cusick wrote, quote, six Federalist votes and 10 Democratic-Republican defections consigned the measure to oblivion. There would be no federal money or troops for deployment in the Floridas. As we'll see in future episodes, this didn't necessarily mean that the Patriot War was at an end, but it did present a major hurdle for Americans ambitious to claim that peninsula to the southeast for the U.S. For now, though, let's get caught up with the presidential contest and the challenge to James Madison's re-election posed by New York Lieutenant Governor and Mayor of New York City, DeWitt Clinton. Now, as we saw in the election of 1808, Democratic-Republican opposition to Madison's election was nothing new. However, this challenge by Clinton was different. First, as described by historian Norman Reshord, quote, in his early 40s, DeWitt Clinton was a rugged, strong-willed politician and an able executive. Historians have often denounced him as unprincipled, but he appears that way only when contrasted with the dogmatic Virginians who had elevated politics into a theology. Clinton was, by nature, an opportunist and a pragmatist, perhaps the first such in our national history to run for president. Beyond this, Clinton had an advantage that neither his uncle George Clinton nor James Monroe had enjoyed when they were put up as opposition candidates in 1808. Federalists were seriously considering whether they should throw in their support for Clinton rather than putting up their own candidate. For a time, there was resistance. And indeed, former Secretary of the Navy Benjamin Stoddard apparently launched a letter-writing campaign that summer to build support around the most prominent Federalists left on the national stage, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall. Stoddard believed, quote, that any Federalist could carry New England, New York, New Jersey, and Delaware, which would earn 95 electoral votes. Only 15 additional votes were needed, and John Marshall of Virginia, he felt, could take Virginia along with neighboring North Carolina. Marshall was also attracting the attention of disaffected Democratic-Republicans, including the former Secretary of State, Robert Smith. Smith wrote to Marshall asking whether he would agree to stand as a candidate. Marshall, however, was cool to the idea and it's understandable why he would be. 
No Federalist candidate had won a presidential election since 1796. Further, his candidacy would likely lead to pressure to resign his seat on the Supreme Court, which would give Madison an opportunity to nominate a Democratic-Republican as Chief Justice. Marshall and others also had doubt at his ability to carry New York. Who better than someone like DeWitt Clinton to do so? Marshall replied to Smith that, quote, The declaration of war against Britain has appeared to me, as it has to you, to be one of those portentous acts which ought to concentrate on itself the efforts of all those who can take an active part in rescuing their country from the ruin it threatens. All who wish peace ought to unite in the means which may facilitate its attainment, whatever may have been their difference of opinion on other points. Thus, the Marshall Boomlet, as it's been dubbed, was burst by Marshall himself. And slowly but surely, Federalists start to come around to the idea of DeWitt Clinton as their candidate in 1812. As former Secretary of State Timothy Pickering wrote around that time, quote, I'm far enough from desiring Clinton for President of the United States. I would infinitely prefer another Virginian if Judge Marshall could be the man. But I would vote for any man in preference to Madison. In July, Federalists reached out to Lieutenant Governor Clinton to gauge his interest in receiving the Federalist nomination for president. If there was a Federalist candidate in addition to him, Clinton's chances of actually winning would go down to next to nothing. Running on a fusion ticket, however, Clinton could count New England and Delaware in his count along with New York, and there was the possibility of drawing on other disaffected Democratic-Republicans in other states to tear votes away from Madison. Thus, Clinton encouraged the Federalists who reached out to him, and on August 5th, he met with three prominent New York Federalists, former Supreme Court Chief Justice John Jay, former Senator Gouverneur Morris, and former U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King to discuss the prospect of calling for a convention to promote the idea of reaching a peaceful resolution with Britain, which likewise would also show its support for Clinton as the peace candidate. Though this would be primarily a Federalist convention, it was hoped that disaffected Democratic Republicans would join as well to make it a united effort. Clinton liked the idea, but suggested that the convention be delayed for a few weeks in order to allow more time for things to go poorly with the war effort, which would likewise encourage anti-administration Democratic Republicans to attend the convention. The Federalists, though not completely pleased with this result, nonetheless agreed to Clinton's suggestion. The news from Detroit certainly seemed to back up Clinton's idea. Further, a bit closer to home, it seemed like there was little to nothing happening with the Army of the Center on the Niagara frontier. This force was headed by Major General Stephen Van Rensselaer of the New York State Militia. This 48-year-old commander, though long active in the militia, had actually never been part of the U.S. Army. Indeed, he had New York Governor Daniel D. Tompkins to thank for his nomination to this key military command. Though Tompkins was a Democratic-Republican, he had put forward the Federalist Van Rensselaer as the head of the Army of the Center for a couple of reasons. The more altruistic reason is that Tompkins felt that Van Rensselaer may be able to rally Federalist support in New York around the war. The more self-serving reason is that Van Rensselaer 
had been talked about as a candidate for governor to run against Tompkins in the next election, and his nomination for the Army post was a win-win for Tompkins. If Van Rensselaer accepted, he couldn't run for governor. If he didn't, he could be labeled as unpatriotic. Van Rensselaer did, however, accept and took charge of this new force with his cousin, Lieutenant Colonel Solomon Van Rensselaer, who had been in the U.S. Army for 10 years, serving as his right-hand man. As one can imagine, the appointment of a militia officer over officers of the regular army did put some noses out of joint, including that of Brigadier General Alexander Smythe, who commanded regular army forces under Van Rensselaer. He flat-out refused to acknowledge the New Yorker as his superior officer, ignoring requests for a meeting and, quote, insisting that any offensive operation originate from his location. As these two tried to sort out the chain of command, British General Isaac Brock arrived on the scene on August 24th, and those still confined by the armistice that had been negotiated between Dearborn and Prevost began making preparations for shoring up the Niagara frontier. With increasingly worrisome reports arriving from various points in the West, Federalists began gathering in New York City in September 1812 for a convention. This meeting of 64 delegates representing 11 states began on September 15th. As described by Reese Jord, quote, the Federalist meeting was the closest approximation to a modern party convention prior to the 1830s. Though the word had been spread that the convention would consider supporting DeWitt Clinton's candidacy for president and that many notable leaders were in favor of this plan, by this point, Rufus King had decided that he would argue in the opposition. King, who had been the vice presidential nominee of the Federalist Party in 1804 and 1808, was approached by Stoddart and former Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott Jr. about again assuming the nomination at the bottom of the ticket as endorsing this idea of a fusion campaign. Knowing that he would be actively opposing Clinton at the convention, however, he removed himself from consideration for the vice presidency. Instead, as described by King's biographer Robert Ernst, King, quote, descanted upon Clinton's unscrupulousness and vacillation in recent years. To elect him would be to substitute Cesare Borgia for James Madison. In almost the words Hamilton had used against Burr, it was said, King denounced Clinton as a dangerous demagogue. Any respectable Federalist was preferable because such a choice would maintain party unity and principle until a more opportune occasion arose. As Rees Jordan notes, quote, Rufus King argued that fusion with anti-war Republicans would divide the Federalist Party and shatter its independence and integrity. At the end of three days, though the convention did not endorse Clinton, it also did not put forward a Federalist candidate of their own and instead, quote, recommended that Federalists throughout the country exert themselves to secure presidential electors who would bring about a change. The Federalists at the convention had, in their deliberations, grown concerned that a full-throated endorsement may turn away some Democratic Republicans who may otherwise have supported Clinton. Likewise, by not endorsing Clinton, should by some chance a majority of Federalist electors be chosen to cast ballots in the Electoral College, they could simply dump Clinton and rally around an actual Federalist candidate. This was seen as trying to make the best of the situation 
but it was also predicated on the idea that their deliberations would remain a secret. Soon enough, however, the word was out, and newspapers were printing accounts of the secret Federalist meeting. Meanwhile, Virginia Federalists, who had not sent delegates to the convention, possibly because they were cool to the idea of endorsing Clinton's candidacy, held a convention of their own in Staunton, Virginia, attended by 32 delegates. This convention gathered on September 21st, which meant that they likely had not heard the outcome of the New York meeting by that point, and rather than endorsing Clinton, nominated Rufus King as president and William R. Davey of North Carolina as vice president. With that, the stage was set. It would be Madison versus Clinton versus King for the presidency in the 1812 election. As I don't think the result of this election will come as much of a surprise to you, dear listener, let's finish up this episode by jumping to the chase. Madison did win re-election in 1812. However, his victory was not a foregone conclusion, as we can see if we dive in a little bit to some of the events in the lead-up to voting. Madison had run as a wartime president, and the opposition to his re-election used this against him. In New Jersey, where the war was unpopular, pro-administration Democratic Republicans were constantly playing catch-up to Federalist and dissident Democratic Republicans. In response to a Peace Party convention held by the opposition in late June, the pro-Madison state leaders moved up their nominating convention to July 10th and strove to make it, quote, the largest convention ever held in the state as a boost for Madison's campaign in New Jersey. In states where the war was popular, pro-Clinton campaigners had to instead challenge Madison on his direction of the war effort to that point. The Clinton campaign effort looked quite different state by state, and as Henry Adams would later assert, quote, no canvas for the presidency was ever less credible than that of DeWitt Clinton in 1812. Seeking war votes for the reason that he favored more vigorous prosecution of the war asking support from peace Republicans because Madison had plunged the country into war without preparation, bargaining for Federalist votes as the price of bringing about a peace, are coquetting with all parties in the atmosphere of bribery and bank charters. Clinton strove to make up a majority which had no element of union but himself and money. Indeed, This inconsistency from Clinton and his supporters became the main point of attack by the pro-Madison press. Madison himself, as was expected of candidates at the time, did little directly to support his campaign effort, though he did send a letter to the Democratic-Republican Convention in New Jersey where he, quote, defended the war in general terms and promised an honorable peace. Then in September, sent a letter to a convention in South Carolina thanking them for their, quote, fidelity to the national rights, and sensibility to the national character, and pronouncing that, quote, it is a war worthy of such a determination, having its origin neither in ambition or in vainglory, and for its object neither an interest of the government distinct from that of the people, nor an interest of part of the people in opposition to the welfare of the whole. His efforts were described by historian Norman Reese George as, quote, dignified, but far from stirring appeal. Meanwhile, on August 17th, key Clinton supporters released a, quote, address to the people of the United States, which served to outline Clinton's policies. However, in order to reconcile the different approaches 
that supporters were taking in individual states with regards to the war. This address just, quote, skirted the war issue and sought a broad popular appeal in the North and West. It focused more on the fact that Madison's main legitimacy in seeking re-election was that he had been nominated by the Congressional Caucus. The address denounced the caucus as a, quote, junto of congressmen rather than a body legitimately reflecting the will of the people. It also insinuated that the caucus had been influenced by foreign agents, namely the French, who saw Madison as their best bet to ensure an American foreign policy favorable to their interest. The election and the war issue stirred up passions in Baltimore to the point that, on July 27th, the city descended into violence. A Democratic-Republican mob attacked the newspaper office of the Federal Republican, a newspaper published by Federalist leader and war opponent Alexander C. Hansen. As described by Reese George, quote, While Republican city officials stood by helplessly, the rioters murdered a Revolutionary War hero, General James M. Lingen, and seriously injured other prominent Federalists. Hansen himself escaped only by pretending to be dead. As the election drew closer, New York Democratic-Republicans began to fret about what a Clinton defeat would mean for him and the party. Thus, Clinton's brother-in-law, Judge Ambrose Spencer, and John W. Taylor wrote to a leading campaigner for Clinton, Richard Riker, urging Riker to convince Clinton to withdraw from the presidential campaign in favor of Rufus King in order to make a victory for a peace candidate a more likely prospect as well as allow Clinton to live to fight another day. Riker, however, asserted, quote, that Clinton was the choice of the people of New York, and any deal with King would be as underhanded and undemocratic as Madison's nomination by Congressional Caucus. Clinton was in it to the very end, and before long, the process of choosing electors began. At that point, there were three ways that electors were chosen. In New Hampshire, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Virginia, quote, electors were chosen by popular ballot on a statewide basis, with the winner taking the entire electoral vote of the state. Meanwhile, in Kentucky, Maryland, Massachusetts, and Tennessee, quote, the electors were chosen by districts, and thus the vote in those states could be divided between the candidates. The rest of the states had their state legislatures choose the electors, which meant that whatever party controlled the state legislature would determine which electors were chosen. As Reese George notes, though, quote, in several states, the legislature was elected in the course of the presidential campaign and hence presumably reflected the attitude of the voters toward the national election. A quick note here. In the New York state legislature, a 29-year-old recently elected state senator from Kinderhook was chosen as DeWitt Clinton's floor manager in the elector vote. Though it may be a little bit before we return to him, rest assured that we'll be talking much more about New York State Senator Martin Van Buren as we go along in our journey through presidential history. When all was said and done, Madison ended up with 128 electoral votes while Clinton received 89 votes. Oddly enough, Madison's running mate, Elbridge Gary, actually received more electoral votes than Madison as two electors from Massachusetts and one from New Hampshire who voted for Clinton also voted for Gary for vice president, giving him 131 electoral votes total. 
Clinton won all the electoral votes of Connecticut, Delaware, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, and Rhode Island, as well as five electoral votes from Maryland. In the Northeast, Madison picked up the electoral votes from Pennsylvania and Vermont, as well as six votes from Maryland, and all the electoral votes from the southern and western states, including the three votes from the newest state in the Union, Louisiana. This, however, was the closest presidential election since 1800, and the uncertainty of whether Thomas Jefferson or Aaron Burr would be the third president. Madison only got 59% of the electoral votes in this election versus 69% in the 1808 election. Though it was a closer election, the math was not in Clinton's favor. There was little chance that Clinton could carry states in the South or the West, so his best chance for victory went through Pennsylvania. The Keystone State, however, swung hard for Madison, with the president winning 63% of the vote. To that point, though, as noted by Reese Jord, the 1812 election, quote, was the most sectionally oriented presidential election prior to 1860. Clinton's attempt to build a broad coalition failed. But this approach would be taken up by future presidential candidates and would prove more successful. That, however, is something best left for future episodes. For now, though, our time together is drawing to a close. Next episode, we'll catch up with what's going on in Europe in an episode I'd like to call the Eastward March, because believe you me, there was much going on across the Atlantic that would impact the Anglo-American conflict. Special thanks again to Tanner of the Beyond the Breakers podcast and to Alex for reading the opening quotes for this episode. Once you're done with this episode, be sure to check out Beyond the Breakers wherever fine podcasts can be found. Special thanks also to Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. If you would like to enlist Christian services for your podcast, just go to yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com to learn more. Special thanks also to the Colonial Music Institute at George Washington's Mount Vernon, who graciously allowed us the use of clips from Hall's Victory as performed by David and Ginger Hildebrand for our intro and outro music. You can find out more about the great work that the Colonial Music Institute is doing to research and share information about early American music and dance by going to mountvernon.org and typing in Colonial Music Institute in the search field. Sources used for this episode, past episodes of the podcast, and links to more information about all of the U.S. presidents can be found on the website at presidenciespodcast.com. If you'd like to reach out to me with questions or comments, you can send me an email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. If you're not already, you can also connect with me on social media. I'm available on Facebook, Mastodon, and Post at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. again, all one word. I hope you've enjoyed our journey through the Madison presidency thus far, and will join me again for our next episode. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.